As you open your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. We've got a lot of text to cover this morning, um, but as you're turning over there, uh, how many of you are familiar with a song? It's not a Christian song. Uh, if you don't know it, it's okay. I don't go look it up. It's not worth it. Um, but how many of you are familiar with Alanis Morissette's 1995 hit, Ironic, right? Okay. Some of you, if, you, if it came on, they probably played on Q99. You would know it. It's just one of those songs. Um, it came out in 1995, which was 27 years ago. Just in case you needed to feel old, um, that's uh, I was still, let's see, was I even in high school yet? I don't even know if I was in high school yet, okay? All right, yeah, uh-huh. I love to just rub it in while I can. You know, when I first started here 11 years ago, I used to have people say, well, oh, look, you're too young to be pastor. And then nobody says that anymore. So, uh, you know, I guess that's what happens. But the song was all about these various paradoxes, or, or really it was just unfortunate situations. There were things like, uh, you know, situations that are painful, tragic, stuff like rain on your wedding day or 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife and, and stuff like that. Here's the thing that was so ironic about the song. None of the things are actually ironies, right? They're bad situations, but if you're not familiar, go back and look up the lyrics of it. Absolutely none of the couplets that she gives None of them are actually ironies. They're bad situations, they're tragic, they're whatever, but they're not actually ironic. So the irony of the song Ironic is that it's not actually ironic. And what's ironic about that is once people started saying that, she started trying to pass it off as that was her plan the entire time, was that the irony of the song was that it wasn't ironic. So let that be what it is. As we look at the word irony, though... um, Ironies are defined as an outcome of events contrary to what was or might have been expected, okay? An irony is when you expect one thing to happen and something different happens, all right? Now, again, not the song ironic, other than the fact that it's ironic that it's not ironic. As we're looking at God's word this morning, what we're going to find is Jesus in the middle of a trial in front of a guy named Pilate, and everything about this story is ironic. Everything about this account is is happening and playing out in ways that it shouldn't. It's the unexpected results. And so what we're going to do is to try to get a handle around it. There's some back and forth interactions here. So we're going to break it into four different sections this morning. I told you last week my sermon was pointless. This week we're making up for it. I've got four points, okay? So I added one for last week um, because usually we do three around here. Okay, just just kidding. All right, y'all awake? We okay? All right. As we look at these various ironic situations that happen in the midst of this trial that Jesus underwent with Pilate and the response of the Jewish leaders and all that's taking place, what I want you to see is that all of these ironies point to the greatest irony of all in this story. The greatest irony of all in this entire story is the fact that these unjust, ironic, ridiculous things that happen are how God chose to save the world. So my hope and my prayer is this. As we're going through, as we look at the ironic things that happen in this situation, like last week, I want you to be willing to put yourself in the text. I want you to be willing to look at what's going on and see, is this me? Am I doing the same thing, ironically, that these folks are doing in this story? And as we do, I also want you just to again see the amazing way that Jesus controlled everything that took place throughout these entire trials. Okay? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into the text. We're in John chapter 18, uh, and we're going to pick up in verse 28, okay? 
Then they, that's the Jewish leaders who had arrested Jesus and had tried him there in front of the high priest. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They didn't enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. What kind of answer is that, by the way? Verse 31, you take him and judge him according to your own law. Well, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Now, just in this section, there's some really painful irony. The first thing that we notice here is that that night, the Jewish leaders were seeking to avoid defilement while they were already defiled. They were seeking to, number one, avoid defilement while they were already defiled. It's easy to miss this detail when we go through the passage because at first it just kind of makes sense. Go back again to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. If you remember, they're in the middle of the Passover feast. This is the time where they celebrate and commemorate God's deliverance of his people out of the land of Egypt. It was a festival that lasted for seven days. And so they know that if they go into a Gentile's house, they're going to be ceremonially defiled, okay? They could go into the courtyard, but they couldn't go into the place where the Gentiles were staying. If they were unclean, that would make them ceremonially unclean. By the way, the Bible never actually taught them that going into a Gentile's house would make them unclean. That was something they added on through their interpretation of the law. However, they said, you know what? To avoid defilement, we're not going to go into the place where Pilate is staying. Because if they were unclean, they would have to push the Passover celebration back by a whole month. And they just couldn't do that. Now, that just kind of makes sense, right? If the ceremonial laws, you're getting ready to take the feast, so I'm not going to risk defiling myself. What's wrong with this picture? They're already defiled. You know why they're already defiled? Because they just arrested God. I mean, let's put it as bluntly as we possibly can. Here they are. They're focusing so much on these externals. They've actually arrested God and are attempting to put the only truly innocent person in all of human history to death. Now, that's great that you don't want to ceremonially defile yourself, but don't you think that justice is important? Not only that, they've also struck God. They actually smacked Jesus for what they thought was back-talking the high priest. Think about that. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet, they've stood by while somebody literally slapped God. So here they think they're avoiding defilement when the reality is they're already defiled. Their hearts are already corrupted. They shouldn't have been taking the Passover. They shouldn't have been doing anything. They should have been falling at Jesus' feet and asking for forgiveness. But instead, they're leading him to the, the Roman governor. Now, this gets to what Jesus has been condemning to the Jewish leaders for throughout his ministry, that they're more concerned with the externals and looking right than they're concerned about doing the right thing out of a right heart attitude that's been transformed by who God is and what he's done. You see, they're all about the externals. That's why Matthew recorded this about Jesus' harshest rebuke uh, to the Pharisees. He said, woe to you in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. 
Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. All right, Grant, go back a, a verse. Let's explain what we see here, okay? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay a tenth of your mint, dill, and cumin. How many of you grow your own herbs? Anybody? Okay, and I'm, I know it now in Virginia, that could have a different connotation than it means. I'm talking about for cooking with, okay? All right? Some of you, please do not tithe off of your herb, okay? All right, we, all right? But some of you grow your own herbs, right? In the Old Testament, God had, had commanded that the nation of Israel would give a tenth of all of their increase, all of their crops, all of their flocks, all of the money they took in. They were to bring that as a tithe. That's the basis that we use, by the way, for giving, that, that our goal as Christians is to start with giving 10% of our income to the Lord and to the work of his church. And Jesus here says, these guys were so religious, they would even take, a, if they had 10 leaves of basil, of basil they would give one of those leaves of basil to the temple. They, they would tithe off of their mint leaves, their dill, their cumin, down to the very spices they used. But he said, you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. He's not condemning them for tithing. He's saying, yeah, you should have tithed, but you should care about the poor. You should care about the oppressed. You, you should care about showing mercy to other people. You should care about faithfully loving God out of a heart that's been transformed. And that's what we see him doing here, right? We, we don't want to defile ourselves because then we couldn't take the Passover. But we're going to kill Jesus. See, they're already defiled. Now, here's the challenge for us. Here, by the way, the, the next verse that he gives there, he says, Blind guides, you strain out a gnat but gulp down a camel. Um, in, the, in the Jewish dietary laws, they weren't allowed to eat insects and they weren't allowed to eat camels. Both of those things were unclean. And what they would do is they would actually like strain their soup or they would actually sometimes, some people say they even ate through a filter. So that, that way they wouldn't accidentally even swallow a gnat. But Jesus says, you're straining out a gnat while eating a camel whole. He says, you're just gulping down this because you're so focused on this that you're missing how unclean you are in this area. Guys, there's a danger here for us in this. I want you to think for a minute. Let me put it in a different arena for a second. Um, I really enjoy going to the gym. I'm not very good at it. Something I started doing a few years ago, but I really enjoy it, okay? And when I, I'm also one, I like to learn everything I can about a subject. I'm just a, a nerd that way. So I listen to like podcasts where these guys talk about different ways to breathe while you're doing your lifts so that you can, you know, get 5% stronger in your lifts or recover faster by doing this or that or the other thing. You know, and I'll listen to these podcasts. I read a book a while back when I was running more on how to run barefoot so that, that way uh, you don't tear up your knees and your hips as bad. And I, I love doing that kind of stuff. But you know what's funny? I'll listen to this podcast about how to get like 5% more out of your lifts by breathing. And then once the kids go to bed, I'm going to sneak down to Dairy Queen and grab a blizzard. I'm, I'm being honest with you guys. Like I've had a blizzard and a blast from Sonic this week. Um, I mean, it's bad. Living that close to Dairy Queen is a really, really bad thing. I'm really concerned. They're building the sheets right here and sheets is my weakness. So like I'm going to be poor and fat in about three years. It's just going to happen. Okay. Because I'll sit here and say, you know what? If I do this weird breathing technique or if I take a cold shower, I'll be better at my workouts while I'm horfing down a large Snickers blast, right? 
It just doesn't make sense because I get so focused on this that I'm missing the bigger thing. Guys, can we say we do that in our relationship with Christ? I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't... Yeah, neither does my dog, right? What about justice? When's the last time I actively did something to make sure that somebody who was getting the raw end of the deal got to do it right? When's the last time I actually advocated for the oppressed, for the poor, for those who are in actual physical pain right now, for the abused? Do I care about that? Let's be honest, guys. You know, we're talking about in the fall, we're going to be looking at some strategic planning as a church about where we believe God's calling us to go and be and do. You know, if you look at our budget, 49% of the money we spend as a church pays for this building. Mortgage, insurance, maintenance, utilities, 49% of what we spend as a church goes to this building. What's that say about our priorities? Now, guys, we use this building for God's glory. We've got a homeschool co-op that that meets here every Tuesday. We try to open it up when we can for church plants and for others who are coming through. You know, uh, Blue Ridge Church, before they had a facility, they would come here and do baptisms and stuff. We, We try to use this facility for the glory of God. But when we're spending 50 cents out of every dollar on our building, is there a chance we need to reorganize our priorities? What's that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that there's oppressed folks out there. You know, it was encouraging to me. I got an email that said this week they had tallied up what we gave through the baby bottle drive for the Pregnancy Resource Center. Church gave $1,251 to support the Pregnancy Resource Center and the ministry there. That's a good thing. That's, that's something for us to celebrate because they're working among the poor and the oppressed. They're working among vulnerable people who need to know Jesus and need to know his love, and they're literally saving lives through it. That's awesome. May that become our testimony. May God work in such a way that we care about mercy and justice and faithfulness, as well as tithing on our dill, mint, and cumin, but that we don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I don't do this, I don't do that, I, don't, I affirm this, I affirm that. Great, you should, but how does it change the way that you live? So here's my challenge for you out of this one for this afternoon. Would you be honest enough to sit down with God and say, God, I need you through your word and through your spirit to show me what I'm missing. Show me if I've allowed myself to get so focused on hot button social issues that are popular in the news, where we take a stand on this, where we've neglected mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. When you do that, and all of a sudden God puts his finger on an area and you say, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not as bad about this as they are. I've got this. No, no, no. The comparison is not somebody else. The comparison is Jesus. So if if you can tell me that you're better than Jesus at that, then you're good but not a one of us is. Now, we're not actively seeking to put Jesus to death. We're not the Jewish leaders standing outside a Pilate's courtyard 
sending Jesus in when we won't go ourselves. But the question is, are there areas where we are defiled and we don't even know it? Write down this reference, Psalm 19. It's verses, I think, 13 and 14. I don't have it up on the screen this morning. But that's where I believe David talks about cleansing me from sins. And then in verse 14, he talks about keep me back from willful sins. Other translations say presumptuous sins. The way I read that is there's times when I'm sinning and I'm presuming that it's okay and it's not. So spend some time chewing over that verse. Lest we find ourselves like the Pharisees standing outside condemning Christ while we're already defiled. Okay? It's the first irony we see. We may not be standing outside his courtyard, but we can make that similar mistake. That leads us to our second irony. Now, throughout this entire passage, the Jewish leaders and Pilate are, number two, rejecting the true king. Rejecting the true king. Pick up in verse 33. I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture with me, okay? So follow along. Uh, We're going to read down through chapter 19, verse 5, okay? So this is a big chunk. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you, to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Pause right there. Do you see the irony here? At some point, the Jewish leaders had told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be their king. So Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus. Now, you need to understand some things about Pilate to understand how ironic this is. Nobody liked Pilate, okay? The Jews did not like Pilate. They had tried to rebel against him and against Roman rule for multiple times over multiple years. Nobody liked him. So not only was he in bad with the Jewish people, he also was in bad with the Romans, because the people underneath him kept trying to revolt against Rome. So the Romans didn't like him. The Jews didn't like him. Nobody likes this guy. He's actually in fear of his life and his his career and all of these things as he's going through all this. Nobody likes him. So how ironic is it that this Roman governor who's barely holding on to power is interrogating the God of the universe? 
How incredible is it that this is taking place? So this not-so-great Roman governor is questioning the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Remember, Jesus points out here, his kingdom is not just some Roman province. He's not just ruler over some little tiny corner of the Roman Empire. No, he is the one whose kingdom is not even of this world. He is the king of heaven. He's the Lord over all of creation. And yet he's allowing himself to get interrogated by this backwoods governor. That's clear in verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. He's not just some governor. He's the king of the universe. Now, we'll come back to verses 37 and 38 in a minute. But jump down to the second part of verse 38 with me. After Pilate had said this, he went out to the Jews and again told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, it says, was a revolutionary. He was probably one of the guys who had participated in one of those revolts where he was trying to overthrow Rome. So he was a treasoner, right? He had committed treason. He likely had killed somebody. Odds are he was a murderer in this and probably all around a rough character. So keep in mind the picture here. Here you've got this treasonous murderer and you've got the king of the Jews who Pilate can find absolutely nothing wrong with. Pilate, I think, is trying to get himself out of the situation. So he says, hey, look, this is a no-brainer. Who do you want me to release? This guy that everybody seems to like except for the handful of y'all that arrested him or this scuzzbag, right? This treacherous, treasonous, revolt-leading, horrible human being. Which one? And they say, we want that guy. Send us the one who committed treason. Send us the one who was the revolutionary, maybe the murderer. Send us that guy. Could you think of a, a more incredible rejection when you're literally looking at the God who created the universe standing in front of you and you say, nah, we'll take that guy. We'll take the dude that's shady. Release him to us. They were so determined to reject Jesus as their king that they were willing to trade him for Barabbas. From there, it says in chapter 19 that Jesus is beaten and mocked. It seems like from the accounts, when we put all the gospel accounts together, there there were two different times that Jesus was really beaten like this. This was a lighter version, not at all mild, but this is just kind of roughing him up. Pilate's, again, trying to get them to let him let Jesus go. So he thinks, well, maybe if I just send him in, let him get roughed up a little bit, they'll think that's enough and we can move on and go about our day. But look at what they did to Jesus. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. Purple robes are what royalty would wear. That was a kingly robe, and they're doing it satirically. They're they're doing this ironically, dressing him up as a king while they spit on him, and they slap him, and they beat him, and they drive these thorns into his head. When I was in Africa one time, I was driving through some brush and we came across the same kind of trees that they probably would have used to make those things. The thorns on those jokers are no lie, two or three inches long, and they are razor sharp. Like, I mean, it is unbelievable how painful these things are. We kept getting hit by them as we were riding in the back of the truck. 
I can't imagine somebody taking those and shoving them down onto the tissue of my forehead. Can you imagine the pain? And then other accounts tell us that they took the staff that they put in his hand and they would beat him in the head to just drive it deeper and deeper. The true king, they're saying it, hail king of the Jews. That's what they should have been saying but it should have been met with a bent knee falling prostrate before him and begging mercy from this king. And instead, they're spitting on him and they're mocking him and they're rejecting him completely. Now, let's be honest this morning. I don't know everybody who's in the room and I don't know everybody who's watching online. There may be somebody who's here today and really this is you. You came because somebody invited you. You came or you're watching because you had nothing better going on this morning. I don't know. But really, when it comes down to it, you don't need Jesus. That's just stupid stuff. You've got this. You can figure it out on your own. You may think we're idiots for what we do. It's okay. Here's my hope and my, my, my prayer for you today. My prayer is that if that's you, my prayer is that you'll look at what this king did for you and see that he is unlike anyone else that the world has ever known. You see, the reason Jesus let himself get beaten like this was because he was going to the cross to take everything I have ever done wrong and everything you have ever done wrong and take it on himself to die in my place, to rescue and save me. Can I plead with you this morning that if you're rejecting that king, stop it. Surrender to him. Give him your life and honor him as he deserves. See, you think you're right with God or you don't even care. See, don't reject this king who would go to such great lengths to rescue you. And that takes us to the third irony we see. We jumped over this passage in the middle, but as they're sitting here avoiding defilement while they're being defiled, and as they're rejecting the true king, they're overlooking truth itself. Pick up again in verse 37. Pilate again asked Jesus, you are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king. Now, Jesus is answering wisely here. If he were to own it, then they would have perfect reason to put him to death. Here, he's not giving him that room. He's letting Pilate uh, just kind of run with it. He's not denying it because it is true, but he's saying, hey, look, you said it, not me. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asks a piercing question that, we could spend a lot of time talking about, and that is, what is truth? What is truth? After hearing what he says, he asks that question, and do you see the painful irony? What did we say Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, verse 6? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Truth is literally staring Pilate in the face. He is the embodiment of truth itself. And Pilate says, what is truth? What even is this? What what is this right? He's been teaching in the area that Pilate oversaw, and if he cared, he could have found out what Jesus had been teaching. Instead, he looks at truth itself in the eyes and says, what is truth? Truth is God putting on flesh, 
Truth is God putting on flesh and then pushing back against the effects of the curse of sin and showing that he's victorious over death itself by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. The truth that Jesus proclaimed is that the only way to find life and hope and true meaning and purpose is to surrender to the one who's been testifying to truth throughout his entire ministry. He is truth. Why didn't Pilate see it? I mean, he was face to face with truth itself. Why didn't he see it? Because he wasn't of the truth. That's what Jesus said. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. See, Pilate is so caught up in the world's systems of political power and intrigue and self-preservation that he can't even hear the voice of Jesus. Our world is really confused about what's real and what's right and what we can actually believe. If that's you this morning wondering about whether absolute truth is even a thing or not and and whether you can trust the the veracity of Scripture, if the Bible is actually real, if it's actually accurate, if you've got those kind of questions about what truth is, we would love to sit down and talk with you because we've got some great news for you. In fact, here's what I would recommend. I know how to talk about some of this stuff, but I don't have a strong background in some of the, uh, it's called apologetics. It's the field where you, you look at the historical evidence and the logical evidence for Christianity and things like that. I can talk you through some of those things. But this guy right here, Paul Metzler, has done a lot of study on it. And I would love to connect you and Paul to be able to sit down and talk through that. We have some other men in our church, guys like Mike Montgomery and some others who have studied a lot on, on the truth and the basis for truth in it. But I would love to sit you and Paul down or you and Mike down or me and you down, whoever, to be able to sit there and, and take your question seriously. Guys, we, we understand it is a weird time in the world and you've probably been taught a whole lot of things and you're confused and we want to try to help you to find a way to anchor yourself in the truth. Okay? We're not going to make fun of you. We're, we're not, no questions too, uh, out there, you know, anything like that. Listen, um, I've had the privilege of serving Jesus for a number of years now, and I've heard just about every question you can ask, even some really, really weird ones. Okay? So, um, so between me and Paul, we'd love to sit down and talk with you so you can find out the truth. Because the reality is, this is the truth. Okay? Now, you can sit there and say, well, it's circular. You're just saying that. It's like truth. I get it. That's why we, I'm not going to get into it deep this morning because it's a conversation that would take place best over coffee or a meal or breakfast or whatever, okay? But if you're wrestling with truth, don't look truth in the face like Pilate did and reject it. Overlook it. Instead, find one of us. We'd love to talk with you more about it, okay? All right, so we've seen some ironic situations. You've got Pilate looking at truth, and he denies it. He overlooks it. We've got the true king who's wearing a purple robe, but a crown that's made of thorns, and he's being beaten and broken. We've seen that the Jewish leaders wouldn't want to defile themselves, but they were already defiled. There's one last irony that kind of wraps all of these things together, and that is that in all of this, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and everyone else was misplacing their allegiance, misplacing their allegiance. Pick back up where we left off there in verse 7 of chapter 19. Excuse me, verse 6, excuse me. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no ground for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. That's an important thing. Pilate doesn't seem to care about God, doesn't seem to be an overly 
religious guy. What little we have about him from history doesn't ever put him as a super religious guy. But one of the things about Romans is they were superstitious. They had stories about gods coming down and taking human forms. And so all of a sudden, things get a little bit interesting here. Wait, you said he was a king. He, he claimed to be the son of God. So Pilate starts getting nervous. Verse 9, he went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? (laughs) Olympus, right? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now picture this. From what we understand in the text, Jesus still has the crown of thorns on his head. The blood is trickling down. Even if they've taken it off, the wounds are there. He's been beaten. He's been spit on. Other accounts tell us that at different points, his beard has been ripped. He's clothed in this purple robe. If anybody looked defeated, you could almost imagine Jesus at this moment. But listen to what he says. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him if it hadn't been given you from above. This is the why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Can you imagine? Think of your pilot in that moment, the hair starts standing up on the back of your neck. Put the questions together. Wait a second, where are you from? Will you not even answer me? You know I have the power to crucify you. I could have you killed. And Jesus just looks up at him and says, you would have no authority if it hadn't been given to you. Can you imagine? Pilate steps back from the one who knocked soldiers on their backs by simply speaking his name. See, Pilate's faced with a decision in this moment. Who's he going to care about and who's he going to follow? See, you and I are all faced with that same decision. There is something that takes the top place in every single one of our hearts. The Bible talks about it in terms of idolatry or worship. Think about it as the thing that is most important to you, the thing you couldn't imagine living without, the thing you're most scared to lose, the thing that's more important to you than anything else in the world. There's something that's there. That's the thing that has your allegiance. That's the thing that you most are driven by, the thing that you respond to. Basically, there's only two options of who we're going to be allied with. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be ourselves. That's why when I said that, maybe there was somebody who said, well, you know what? I don't follow anybody. I'm master of my own fate. I don't answer to anybody. I don't even know if God can judge me, right? Then that means you've put yourself there. But the reality is all of us, apart from Christ, we have all put ourselves in that spot. We put what we want above what God wants. We put what we think we need. In this moment, you see Pilate switch into self-preservation mode in a big way because see, look what happens next. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. At some level, he believes Jesus. There's something about this guy that's different. His wife had come out at one point and said, hey, I had a dream about this guy. Don't touch him. Don't have anything to do with him. And so now Pilate's getting scared. But here's what happens. He's trying to release him, and the Jews keep shouting in verse 12, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. 
Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Ooh, they knew right where to hit him. He was already on the outs with Caesar because of the revolts that had taken place. It wouldn't take much, and he was already going to have a whole lot of things to explain because of the riot that was happening with Jesus here already. And they say, oh, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar. That's when that self-preservation kicks in. Jesus, I want to help you. I got to watch out for me. See, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about noon. He told the Jews, here's your king. They shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. They led Jesus away to be crucified. Now, it got worse in that section. You see, Pilate was a Roman. He didn't really know the God of the Jews. He should have. He was over that area. He should have known the one true God, but he didn't. He's worried about himself. Okay, sorry. My battery may be going, I don't know. Nope, we're good. Okay, sorry. He was worried about himself, though, and about what would happen if the Romans found out that he let this guy go. The Jewish leaders, however, they knew better. Remember, the Jews didn't like Rome at all. They didn't think they were supposed to be subjected to anybody. God was their king. He'd made that clear. And then when the monarchy was set up, it was supposed to be fulfilled by a son of David. So what do you have? You have the son of David, the one that God has promised for thousands of years to come and take the throne over all of Israel and reign over the world. And instead, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They completely sell out because they just want Jesus dead. This would have been blasphemous for them to say that Caesar was their king in this way. They're rejecting God, they're rejecting the Davidic Messiah, and they're doing it full well, knowing that this is all they can do to get Jesus killed. As we look at our own hearts, guys, maybe we're not in Pilate's courtyard yelling, crucify him, but when we're choosing what we want over what God wants, we're committing the very sins that put Jesus on the cross. I've used this illustration before. If, if we were walking down Roanoke Street here and you and I were walking together and you saw an out-of-control truck coming my way and you shoved me out of the way of the truck, but that truck hit you and you were paralyzed from the neck down, you saved my life by pushing me out of the way. Imagine I come to the hospital room and I see you there. You're in a full-body cast. Everything's broken. You're hooked up to all kinds of machines, all kinds of IVs. You're barely conscious. And I walk in and I say, thank you so much for saving my life. And then I slap you across the face. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ludicrous that we would do that. Because if you saved my life, I should do anything I can out of gratitude and out of love for you because you gave everything you could for me. 
But that's what we do when we continue in sin. We're saying, Jesus, I know you died on the cross for me. That was real great. Thank you for that. I'm still in charge of my life. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We're slapping Jesus in the face over and over and over again. I mentioned at the beginning, this is an ironic trial, isn't it? Avoiding defiled when already defiled. Rejecting the true king, overlooking truth, misplacing our allegiance. But the greatest irony of all is that these were events that God would use to save the world. You see, as they led Jesus off to be crucified. Remember that it's ironic because Jesus is the one condemned to die, although he was the one who actually did everything right. Right? Although the Jews would stay outside to stay clean, Jesus entered into our uncleanness. On the cross, becoming sin for us so that we would be made clean. Although he was the true king, he allowed himself to be beaten and murdered for us. Although others rejected the truth, he never wavered from declaring God's truth. And although that day he allowed others to reject him, he never put himself above the Father's will and plan. That's the God we serve. So my challenge and my question for you is to do this. Go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes for just a minute. Again, we're not doing anything weird. We just do this so that you can have time to focus on who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life and what you need to do in response. So my challenge to you first and foremost is, are you following Jesus as your king? That's what salvation is. Turning from living life my way, recognizing who Jesus is from the heart, turning to honor him because Jesus died for you. Have you truly come into that relationship with him? If not, surrender to him today. Don't reject him. Don't overlook him. Don't keep trying to live life your own way or trying to make yourself righteous or right with God or right with the world, whatever. Surrender to the God who made himself unclean for you. The God who became sin on your behalf so that you could have life. Then, if you're here today, though, and you know Jesus as your Savior, you know him as your Lord, you're trusting him, you're walking with him, are there areas where you may be defiled, but you've been avoiding defilement in other areas, thinking you were doing good, while you neglected this one? Are there areas where you're holding out and saying, you know, Jesus, you can be in charge of this part of my life, but I'm going to handle things over here. Are you wavering in the truth? What do you need to do today? Remember, this is the God who did these things for you. The God who suffered, the God who bled, the God who was raised for you. Let me pray for us. Can you take just a moment there with your head bowed and your eyes closed and do business with God?
Father, it's ironic that Jesus would die for us. That he would let himself be tried, falsely accused, beaten, crucified. You are so good. God, would you transform our hearts in the way that only you can? If there's somebody here this morning who's not yet trusted you, would you draw them to yourself? And Father, for those of us who have trusted you, would you open our eyes to see areas we're overlooking? Places where we're like the Pharisees and the scribes and the other Jewish leaders, willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead, willing to compromise, to sell out. Areas where we're missing key things you've called us to do. Use these moments now in our hearts to help us to trust you. So, Father, where we have made commitments to you, we ask that you would empower us to fulfill them. Where we've been convicted of sin, we ask that you break our hearts and allow us to repent. Help us to go out from here changed. Follow through with everything you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray.